In this third and final lecture on the uh, lobbying efforts through the executive branch, uh, I'm going to look at what it takes to succeed at lobbying executive appointees. Uh, and I've already talked about in the previous few lectures uh, sort of the partisan orientation of uh, the administration either creates a favorable environment or an unfavorable environment uh, for lobbying activities. But much like with winning legislative elections and getting a favorable majority in the legislature, that is just the beginning of the task. It is not the end of the task. What you have to then do is follow through with then going and convincing those appointees to actually enact the policies that uh, your organization wants them to enact. It's a different kind of lobbying than lobbying a legislature. Uh, and it's different because the people that are being lobbied are psychologically the same as uh, um, anybody anywhere else in uh, the system of governance. Judges, executive appointees, uh, elected legislators, they're all humans. They all have the same basic human psychology. But because they owe their particular position to a different mechanism, their thinking is going to be different, and therefore the approach to uh, working with their general human psychology um, is going to be uh, different depending on why they got their position. Why did somebody get their position as an executive uh, um, appointee? There's two reasons. One, you have the proper partisan orientation, and two, you have the relevant experience and connections in that particular industry. Right? Technically, presidents could appoint whoever they want to whatever kinds of policy-making positions, whether they have policy expertise in that area or not. Um, and some, some of that goes on, because part of uh, executive appointments is rewarding specific supporters. Uh, but typically, that's done uh, with ambassadorships, right? Which is, these are, these are positions that are important, but they, they're done by uh, people who have usually no diplomatic experience, and they're just supporters of the president. In the policy-making areas, in the cabinet departments and in, and in the independent agencies, um, the people who are put there, they have the proper partisan orientation, um, which means they share the same general worldview as that presidential administration, um, but they don't necessarily agree on every particular issue. And one of the things, particularly uh, for presidents who, have to, who get to appoint literally thousands of people throughout the executive branch, it's impossible to find everybody to fill all these positions who has the same exact policy position on every issue as the presidential candidate does, as the person when they were campaigning promised, right? Um, so you, you take people who, are, who have experience and connections in the relevant uh, policy area, education, environment, uh, health, transportation, commerce, agriculture, whatever it happens to be, th these are people who are in that area. So they bring that knowledge and experience but then you pull them from, often from past uh, administrations from your same party. You get a, you're a Republican president, you're elected, there's been eight years of a Democratic administration. A lot of the people you pull in are gonna be from the previous Republican administration. This is very common because what you want is you want people who have not only relevant experience in that field, you also, in that policy field, you also want people who have some experience in government because they will know what it takes to get things done. As I indicated last time, there are all kinds of regulations 
that hem in the, uh, the, the regulatory, the regulation making process. And the better you know the regulations governing the making of regulations, uh, the more effectively you're going to be able to carry out the general partisan agenda of the winning side. Um, and, but, and also, just those are the people who are around and who are, and who are uh, interested in those jobs are people who often have had them before. They had a lower level. They were a, you know, an undersecretary of state for, you know, of agriculture for whatever it is. And now they could be uh, a person who could be the assistant secretary of state for a larger, or sec secretary of agriculture for a larger uh, area, a little bump up. Um, so these people get their positions because of experience and connections in a policy area and the proper partisan orientation, and they do or don't have the full-throated version of uh, that particular president's policy orientation, right? Sometimes presidents have to appoint people who have a mellower or slightly turned version of the policies that uh, that president campaigned on and that they liked, and it's, that's because that's who's available, um, and there are literally thousands of these positions, and so you sometimes have to take uh, who, you know, whoever's there as long as they're from the right party. Uh, and uh, what this means is that as a lobbyist, as an interest group that's going to go speak to these people the, who have direct uh, or very fast-track policymaking power, uh, that's, the, that's the way they got their jobs. What's going to happen to these people? Well, they're going to go back into the industry that they came from when this administration is done. And sometimes they'll go before the administration is done, but uh, if nothing else, you know, like, you know, if, if you're a Republican who gets appointed to the uh, a position in the Department of Agriculture uh, in the Trump administration, you know that at the end of four or eight years, definitely at the end of eight years, you're gonna, you know, even if another Republican president wins, they're gonna probably want to bring in their own people, and some people will stay. But, you're, you know, you're term limited out just like uh, the president is, and maybe you'll leave even sooner than that, you're going to go back into that industry. You're going to go into the industry that is being regulated. Now, this is often uh, launched at this point, and this is called the revolving door. This is often launched as a criticism of our policymaking system because if people are revolving back and forth between the private sector and public service, and they're going to go into the industry, uh, uh, a private company in the industry that they were regulating, don't they obviously have an interest in regulating it to their own material and financial benefit? They do, yes. Um, but what they also have an interest in is regulating it in a way that seems sensible to their perspective. Um, and so the, what, what these executive appointees, because they do have consciences and they also have ideas about what makes the world uh, a better place, what makes that particular uh, industry a better place. They're not just materialistically like, well, what will make my stocks more valuable? Some people have that orientation and uh, they'll make policy in, in, in that particular way. And so the revolving door does lend itself to this kind of soft version of corruption where regulators are feathering their own future nests. That does happen. But part of the benefit of the revolving door is that people in government have experience in the industry that they're regulating. Uh, it would be problematic to have people making regulations for an industry that they don't know anything about because then they would just be purely ideological. It's like, okay, I'm a, I'm a progressive Democrat. I'm regulating this industry, agriculture, that I know nothing about. I'm just gonna do that according to my ideological insights and intuitions, and that probably doesn't make very good policy. Now, I bring up ideological insights and intuitions and orientation because this is actually, all of the executive appointees have some kind of personal ideology about the, uh, 
government in general, its relationship to the uh, private sector, uh, the, their department's relationship to the industry that they're regulating. And typically that orientation for the Republican side of things is a free markets are better, uh, privatization is better, um, governments are inefficient, regulations get in the way, and Democrats typically have the opposite orientation that government has an important positive role to play, government uh, can bring uh, public concerns to industries that otherwise would just be concerned with profits uh, and uh, productivity, um, and while governments uh, can be intrusive, regulations can be intrusive, regulations are necessary and helpful to the uh, citizenry. Both of those orientations, actually, I, I you know, I'm, as most students probably know, uh, who have ever taken a class from me before, I'm a Democrat, I vote Democratic, and I tend to have that orientation. I see the benefit in both of those orientations, though. Both of them, I think that the, the Democratic orientation is more right, but there's, there's truth in all of the basic premises of uh, the Republican orientation. A member of an administration who's appointed is going to have one of those two general uh, orientations. And so when you go to regulate, excuse me, when you go to lobby, one of the things you're doing is acknowledging that person's perspective on what's good for the country, good for the industry, good for the people. Right? They have a kind of a built-in common good uh, uh, fostering mechanism. And what you're trying to do as a lobbyist is speak to their version of the common good. If you come into a Republican administration and try to talk to uh, political appointees via about the common good of more government regulation and subsidies and all this stuff, they're gonna they're they're gonna say, yeah, you know, that's not how I see the common good. I think that actually works against the common good. That works against having an efficient, well-run uh, industry. Um, you have to come in and speak their language. Now, obviously, if your uh, preferred uh, uh, policies align with the partisan orientation, you're going to have an easier time connecting your preferred policies to this person or this group of people's uh, basic orientation towards what the common good is. But it's not going to be a slam dunk because there are multiple ways to manifest the common good, uh, even from a Republican or a Democratic point of view. And if you come in and you're from the sort of wrong party, you can still speak that language. You can still say, you know, in general, uh, government regulations make things uh, um, less efficient, we agree with you, but in this particular area, here are regulations that industry wants, right? Here are regulations that actually are going to um, be acceptable to people who are in the private sector. Um, and that argument is not always available to you, but that argument is potentially available to you. So you come in to speak to these uh, people and uh, you're going to be speaking essentially a partisan-tinged discourse about the common good. Um, and it's not as though you're like, hey, we're Republican-friendly, you're Republicans, you know, we're good. Like, just make our policy for us. There's a, okay, you have a Republican free market, less government regulation orientation. I want some regulations removed. I'm still going to have to make a case to you why these particular regulations are standing in the way. Now, let's say that there's a Democratic administration which is not so against uh, the government regulations as a general orientation, and I have a deregulatory agenda. It would be you know, a taller hill to climb to come in and ask for the, the uh, removal of certain regulations, but what uh, can be done is to speak that 
language of the common good and say, yeah, you know, in general, the, the regulations that your agency has over the industry are beneficial and they're helpful to consumers and et cetera, et cetera. But these particular regulations are actually doing the opposite of what they're supposed to do, right? These regulations are getting in the way and regulations in general and a lot of the ones you guys have already uh, and some of the ones that you're considering are really good, but here are some that are actually problematic. Uh, and one of the things that actually can, can and does happen is that um, democratic lobbyists, people who are used to speaking to democratic uh, appointees because they share that sort of common view, can be hired by organizations that want deregulation. And those lobbyists will look at the, the regulations and say, yeah, you know, some regulations, just because regulations in general are favorable to us as Democrats, doesn't mean that all regulations are good. Same thing is true on the Republican side. Just because there's a general deregulatory, anti-regulation orientation doesn't mean there aren't some regulations that aren't necessary in doing a really good job. So you can make the argument for deregulating uh, something even when there's a Democratic administration or for regulating something even when there's a Republican administration. But what you have to be doing is speaking directly to that ideological orientations version of the common good. So it'll be a different type of argument. Just like you know, if you are trying to convince uh, a bunch of friends to go to a particular movie, right? You're like, you really want to go to the newest Quentin Tarantino movie, and uh, that's just like, you want to get the group of people to go because it'll be more fun, you can go get drinks afterwards and talk about it in a world where this stuff uh, actually happens. Um, not the world that we're living in right now where that doesn't happen, but you, you know that different of your friends you're gonna to need to bring different arguments to them depending on their taste in movies as to why this particular movie is the, is the one uh, to, to go to. So you're not gonna say the same thing to everybody. You're not gonna say like, oh my God, we know it's gonna be crazy and there's gonna be some kind of just like gnarly, violent scene somewhere and probably a bunch of them and, and, and that's so awesome, let's go see that. So exciting, right? You're gonna say that to the people who you know like that. The people who don't like that you're not going to say that to them. You're not going to make that argument. You're going to you're going to say you know his films are so thoughtful and they're long and deep explorations uh, and you know and it's true that sometimes it gets a little gnarly, but like it's totally worth it to have that five minutes of just violent bloodshed and you can turn your eyes away like for the depth and insightfulness that these movies bring. So you're going to make different arguments to different pe people who are differently situated because of their different perspectives. In this case, on films. Uh, but with lobbying uh, on what makes for the common good. And I put that in air quotes because the common good is obviously a very contentious uh, topic and it's very controversial as to what is in the common good. There is a partisan orientation towards what kinds of arguments will demonstrate the common good. Um, now, there's also, of course, there is the tool of potential benefits for post-public service uh, um, employment. And if you're an interest group that actually has the ability to offer inducements in terms of good uh, employment outside of public service, that is obviously going to work to your benefit because humans are humans. You know, if, if, if they see a future world where they can feather their nest, they're going to feather their nest. Uh, and that, in certain industries and certain regulatory bodies, uh, that happens way more than in others. Like for example, in defense contracting and aeronautics, um, those kinds of regulations are made by people who are often themselves looking at very lucrative jobs in the industry. Uh, it happens in like the Food and Drug Administration. People who make certain decisions often get employed by the companies that benefited from those kinds of uh, decisions. Uh, so obviously if you have that ability to, to provide that kind of inducement, 
then uh, it's going to make it more likely that you're going to get what you want. Though there are, of course, ethics rules and ethical considerations that will prevent uh, policymakers from totally feathering their own nests. And that's why it doesn't happen all the time. That's not why it's not just this kind of like totally corrupt revolving door. Uh, and the other thing to keep in mind is that not everybody who leaves public service to go into the private sector goes to corporations that work in that particular industry. Many of them become lobbyists. Many of them become consultants. Many of them go to university jobs. Many of them go to think tanks. And so the revolving door from public service to the industry is not always from a government agency to a private corporation that's making profits where you can just cash in. It's the, the revolving door spins through a number of different uh, uh, private sector uh, types of uh, employment. And so, for example, if I'm a person who's going to go get a university position, obviously I'm going to be able to get a better university position, uh, teaching position from having been uh, high up in the Department of Agriculture if I teach something that's agriculture related um, than if I didn't have that job. And so part of the revolving door there is I just, I go into government service to be able to get a better uh, university job when I'm on the outside. I'm feathering my own nest, but I don't need to make the right kinds of policy decisions to get a good university job, right? Uh, the prestige of, of that and the experience of the position that I held in that administration is going to uh, give me the, uh, the feathered nest. If I'm going to go work for a think tank, if I'm going to go myself become a lobbyist, it's the experience, not the specific decisions that I made that are going to be beneficial to me in my post-public service uh, employment. And then it can become a revolving door that's actually kind of an upward spiral where you serve in a you know, low-level uh, position in an administration, and then you move uh, to a pretty good position uh, in the uh, private sector. The next administration comes around, you move slightly higher, so you have more prestige, more experience, more policymaking power. Your next position back in the private sector is higher up than the previous one was. So you can kind of spiral your way up. It's not a revolving door that's flat. It's more of a, like a, a, a spiral staircase that's also an escalator. Um, an, uh, yeah, a, a spiral escalator. That would be, that's really what it is. And, it's, and it, it can, as I say, in certain policy areas, particularly in defense where there's lots of money, in drugs, uh, pharmaceuticals, that where there's lots of money, the revolving door can be much more of that direct self, uh, financial self-interest, quid pro quo kind of thing. Um, but even there, you still have to speak the, uh, the common language or the language of the common good to the, to the executive uh, appointees. Totally different than the language you speak to legislators. The language you speak to legislators is all about how can you help them get reelected, right? You don't even need, I mean, you can of course speak to them in what they think the common good is, but really what legislators are listening for is how can you shortcut my ability to get reelected? How can you help me make this obnoxious task of having to run for reelection every couple of years less obnoxious? Um, so that's what they're gonna be listening for. Executive appointees don't ever have to get reelected. Um, and they're, pro they're probably going to be out uh, and want to leave even before the president leaves uh, the administration. Um, so you're not going to talk to them about like, how can I help you get reappointed to this particular type of position? Um, also, I should note here again, just the difference between playing offense and defense. It's always going to be easier to play defense and it's going to be easier because of basic human psychology to talk a policymaker out of something drastic that might totally align with their partisan orientation to talk them out of it using the common good uh, language as well, the language of caution, of uh, small steps. So if you're playing defense, uh, often the best thing you can do is not totally block uh, the policy that the other side wants and that they're working on. The, 
the best thing you can do and often what you're shooting for is just to water it down to minimize it as much as possible. It's gonna happen, but let's make it as little bad for us as possible. Um, the other thing to note about lobbying through the uh, executive appointments and, and also uh, you know, by supporting presidential and gubernatorial candidates for the direct applications of executive uh, power that they can just turn a campaign promise into a, campaign, into a policy victory is that um, these victories, while they're quicker, uh, they are less enduring because they, the, the, the same thing can happen in the opposite direction when the next administration comes in. And so it, when you get a legislative victory, you create something that's much more lasting, much more long-term. Uh, it's harder, but it's more lasting. So there are, in, in all of these uh, areas of, of lobbying, there are trade-offs built in. Getting a piece of legislation passed takes a long slog. It takes creating that kind of long-term codependent uh, relationship between interest groups and candidates that gets your priorities moved to the top of the agenda slowly and gets the elected officials that you supported into important uh, committee chairs and party leadership positions where they can actually act on the agenda. But once you get a legislative victory, it's very difficult to reverse it. Regulatory victories, uh, victories through the executive branch are not, you know, the snap of the fingers is a little glib. It's, it, it, it does take more than that, but they are much easier to reverse. So efforts to get policy victories through the executive branch um, can be fleeting. And so they, they, even though they're easier, depending on whether you have a favorable policy or partisan orientation or not, uh, it's also a, a riskier proposition to put your resources into that particular direction. Okay, so for the um, final lectures for this week, we're gonna turn from the executive branch to the judicial branch. And just to note that there are some similarities in this one particular way. At the federal level, all judicial policymakers, all judges and justices um, are appointed by the president. And so the policy orientation of the, um, the administration is going to impact how judicial lobbying goes down. But it's a much more long-term thing because presidential appointments to uh, judicial positions are lifetime appointments, and so it's a slower transition. Uh, whereas presidential appointments to the executive happen immediately, you fill the executive branch with the people that you uh, that agree with your general worldview, um, and uh, you start to roll on your policy priorities. So th the judicial policymaking avenue is inflected by presidential politics, um, but not in such a direct way. So there are there is that one similarity. If, if you're a conservative judge appointed by a Republican president, certain kinds of legal arguments are gonna make more sense to you than if you're a liberal judge uh, um, appointed by a Democratic president. So the same thing is true for executive appointees. They bring with them their orientation, and so the arguments that are made to them are going to be uh, easier for them to hear and absorb and act on, or harder for them to hear and act and absorb on. Uh, absorb. But it doesn't mean that when you have an administration that goes against uh, your, uh, your policy inclinations that you have to just wait it out. One, you still need to play defense uh, and try to minimize the damage. And two, you can potentially, by speaking the, um, that other party's language of the common good, uh, you can actually maybe get them to do something positive for you as well. Okay, so we're going to move on now from the executive branch to the judicial branch as we round out the consideration of lobbying to the three different branches of government.